The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. We had something really wild going on. You needed to be living in a cave if you didn't realize women were being killed. In June of 1962, two women were found strangled in Boston. Then came another in July, two more in August. You know, if you had five bodies, you could expect there would be more. The killer seemed to be selecting his victims at random. I think everybody believed they were the next victim, and I listened every night for creaks on the stairs, something coming up to murder me. The Boston police launched one of the biggest manhunts in the history of the city. We've interrogated over 5,000 people. We've screened over 2,500 sex offenders who have been released from mental hospitals and jails and institutions. But the interrogations still hadn't turned up a single solid piece of evidence. We were desperate for clues. Now, it would be nice to the devil if he can give me the information that I'm looking for. Five bodies you could expect to be The summer of 1962 had the city on edge. And then for months in the fall, nothing. Maybe all the public attention had made the killer cautious. Maybe women were more careful about locking their doors. As the year came to a close, the city wondered if this terrifying cloud would finally lift. In early December, the killer claimed the next victim, and the details of the crime rattled the city and turned the investigation on its head. This is New England. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Articles of silk or satin. Priscilla was hiding inside the apartment. It's the unknown that we fear. Episode 3, Dead Ends and Copycats. This is the letter. This is the letter that Sophie was writing to her boyfriend. Oh, my God. December 5th, 1962. My dearest Chuck. December 5th, 1962. My dearest Chuck. May this letter find the man I love well. How is that cold? I feel fine, especially after you called me last night. You're the kind of medicine I need. You can make a person... One afternoon in December 1962, Sophie Clark was in her apartment on Huntington Avenue, a busy commercial street in Boston's Back Bay. As the rain fell outside, she sat at her desk, writing a letter to her fiancé, Chuck, who lived back home in New Jersey. He would be visiting the following week. Today is a nasty day. I do hope the weather is better next week for our sakes. I hope it won't be too late when you get here. I, I know it depends on when you finish work, but you know I'll be sitting here waiting. 
I fell asleep last night playing an album by the Flamingos. Sophie Clark was a 20-year-old student at the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology. She was a conscientious young woman who always headed home after school to study. I'll start my homework when I finish this letter, then I'll shift over to the kitchen and cook supper. We're going to have liver tonight, cooked in onions and gravy along with mashed potatoes and a vegetable, I guess. Maybe this weekend I'll get around to In the letter, Sophie wrote about what she was going to have for dinner, how she was going to spend that evening. It's the kind of stuff a young couple would text about today. When is your friend Landy going to move in with you? I'll be glad for you because then you'll not have so many expenses. I was going to suggest that you get a phone, but I guess you can do without it. I... That's where Sophie's letter was cut short. At the end of the page, she began a new sentence with the word I. Below that, the page was left blank. It was a habit of mine every day to call Sophie between the hour of 4 and 4.30. And this particular day, when I called Sophie at 4.15, she didn't answer. And I just felt funny. So then I... Sophie's roommate, Gloria Todd, had called home from work. In this 1963 television interview, she's wearing cat glasses, a white sweater set, and a string of pearls. So then I tried to call her again at 4.30. Still, there wasn't any answer. Gloria got home around 5.30 and knocked on the door. I said, Sophie, it's Glow. I said, open the door. And she still didn't answer. So then when I turned the key and I opened the door, I found Sophie lying, sprawled out on our living room floor, motionless. She just didn't move. And I was really panicked and shocked, and I called out her name, and I said, oh, God. And then I thought, well, what was I going to tell her mother? Because when Sophie came to stay with us, the last phrase I said to her mother at the time was, don't worry, I'll take care of Sophie, and I'll make sure that she writes. So don't worry about her. Oh, here's a copy of Sophie Clark's autopsy report. The body was in a supine position, dressed in a garter belt and stockings with a white cloth about the neck, which appeared to be a petticoat or half-slip. Beneath this white cloth was a nylon stocking ligature, very tightly constricting the neck. On the feet were a pair of loafer shoes with corrugated rubber soles. Sophie was wearing a blue housecoat, and it was flung open. She'd been sexually assaulted. Only two weeks before her December 5th death in a fourth-floor apartment at 315 Huntington Avenue, Back Bay, Sophie Clark, while on a Thanksgiving visit to her New Jersey home, confided to her father the great fear she had for her own safety in view of the rash of stranglings in Boston. This is from an article by Loretta McLaughlin, the young reporter covering the case in 1962. She interviewed Sophie's family and friends for this story in The Record American. 
Her fear had been so overwhelming in the late summer just before she was to return to the medical technology school she attended in Beacon Hill, Sophie asked her mother if she could transfer to a similar school in New York. A mile away... For Sophie Clark, her worst fears came true that cold December day in 1962. After the break, we'll take a closer look at the murder of Sophie Clark and why the circumstantial details of her death forced investigators to question everything they thought they knew about the Boston Strangler. And we'll find out what makes experts today believe a second Strangler was indeed roaming the streets of Boston. That type of change and then also other dynamics at the scene would tell me we're not dealing with the same guy. The facts of Sophie Clark's murder confounded the police, not because of the similarities to the other five stranglings, but because of some notable differences. The most obvious difference was Sophie herself. The initial five victims were between the ages of 55 and 75. They were white women, late middle-aged, lived alone in their apartments, Uh, But here we go from, you know, an older white woman to a quite beautiful young black woman, um, 50 or so years younger. I talked to Susan Kelly about Sophie Clark. When Kelly was writing her 1995 book, The Boston Stranglers, she learned more than she ever wanted to know about serial killers. And one of the things she learned was that when it comes to victims, serial killers tend to stick to type. At the time I was writing the book, for example, there was in either Kentucky or Tennessee someone who was killing redheaded women. Susan is referring to the redhead murders that happened in the South in the late 70s and early 80s. And this person was sticking to type. Ted Bundy had a particular type of woman that he chose as his victims, very attractive young women, hair parted in the center, Uh, shoulder length or slightly longer. So then for a serial killer like the Boston Strangler who has killed five older white women, to suddenly target like a young black woman, that's not something, it's just... That just does not, uh, it it is totally out of character, if you want to use the word character, for a serial killer to make that kind of jump. I talked to Mark Safrick. Remember him from episode two? He's the 23-year veteran of the FBI who did research specifically in the field of elderly female homicides that involved sexual assault. Who better to talk to about the implications of this change in victim type? Before I asked him about Sophie Clark, I wanted to get his expert opinion on the first five murders, and just the first five murders. And we're wondering, given what you know of elderly homicides, how likely it might be that these first five murders were committed by a serial offender? 
Well, I think from the initial information that you've given and, and my recollection of these cases, it's there's probably a high likelihood that they're committed by the same offender, especially when you're looking at ritualized behaviors or need-driven behaviors in these crimes. In other words, behaviors which are not necessary for the offenders to successfully commit the murder. And that is the insertion of a foreign object, because that is a relatively rare activity in this type of crime, usually performed, uh, engaged in by younger offenders. Um, you know, having five of these murders in a relatively short period of time would likely suggest the same offender. But I, I do want to make one distinction clear. Um the first five women were, were older than 55, yeah. but victim number six, she was young and she was an African-American woman. Right. And that seemed like, from our perspective, that seems like a real shift. And we're wondering what you think about that. I would say it's very, very unusual for a sexual murder of elderly women to, to change targets both in race and age to a much younger victim. I would say that's, uh, I've not seen it, not seen it with any of the serial offenders that I'm familiar with. Is it possible though, Mark, that the killer might have targeted older women because they were more vulnerable, but then when he became more confident in his ability to enact these murders, then he went on to kill younger women because he had that confidence? Well, I think it's always possible that something like that could occur, but in my experience and in the research, it doesn't bear that out. There's no reason for an offender like this, especially with the success that he's had with these women, to change that, to change that MO to a much younger victim and to change race as well. I would say it's very unlikely. Safrik is referring to a killer's MO, or modus operandi. It's the pattern that you see in serial crimes like the stranglings. Based on the shift in victim type, and that's part of the killer's MO, Susan Kelly and Mark Safrick concurred. It's possible, they said, that there was a second Boston Strangler, and that Sophie was his first victim. But MO is not just about victim type. Sophie Clark's murder also presented a couple of unlikely shifts in the killer's ritualized behavior, as Safrick calls it. With Sophie Clark, the killer had left behind evidence. Semen was found near the body. Remember when I spoke to Loretta McLaughlin, the reporter? She talked about the striking lack of evidence in the first several cases. That is the most outstanding characteristic of the stranglings. They were perfect crimes. Here was a case in which the killer hadn't carried out a perfect crime. And there was a second change in the strangler's ritual. Sophie had not been assaulted with an object. If you add it all up... That type of change in victim, not only in race, but in age, and then also other dynamics at the scene. The semen. Yeah, the yeah. semen being found would, would tell me we're not dealing with the same guy. Boston was potentially dealing with a copycat, someone who committed the murder and set it up to look like the Boston Strangler had done it. But who? I'm reminded of something Mark Safrick said in our interview, that the murders of elderly women have fewer clear motives because older women are less likely to have lovers and love triangles or jealous friends. Sophie Clark, however, was young. Because of that fact alone, her murder was more typical. And typically, women are killed by someone they know. 
The person who killed 20-year-old Sophie Clark was known to her. Of this we feel sure. In every other case... As reporter Loretta McLaughlin interviewed Sophie's friends and family, she became convinced that Sophie's killer was not a stranger. Loretta wrote an article titled, Sophie Knew Her Killer, opened her door to him. The door to her fourth-floor apartment at 315 Huntington Avenue was doubly locked. And each person who knew her every habit has attested to the fact Sophie would never open her door to anyone save a trusted acquaintance when she was not what she termed, quote, properly dressed. Even when she was home in New Jersey, Sophie refused to let anyone but a member of the family into the house if she were wearing just a housecoat. It's a touching detail, and it suggests she would have only opened her door to someone familiar. Someone like her fiancé Chuck, the one she was writing to the afternoon she was killed. He lived back home in Inglewood, New Jersey. There's no known record of him ever being a suspect. However, Sophie's roommates told police that a man named Bob Payton had recently taken Sophie to the movies. He had also visited Sophie at their apartment a couple of times. The roommates described him as neurotic. According to a neighbor of Sophie's, Bob Payton had been in the apartment building the day Sophie died. The neighbor said Payton knocked on her door, that he was sweaty and seemed nervous. He told her he was there to borrow a book from her husband. Police liked Bob Payton as a suspect. They considered the possibility that Sophie had rejected Payton's advances and that he retaliated by killing her. In an effort to conceal his guilt, he imitated the Boston Strangler. Author Susan Kelly. You know, the press had created a monster, basically, a phantom fiend who was stalking Boston. So, in effect, if you wanted to get rid of an inconvenient woman, you had a template for murder presented to you by the press. There were at least three stockings wrapped around her neck, and they were intertwined. You know, just (laughs) tie a stocking or a, a bathrobe sash around her neck, blame it on the strangler, And you're home free. Not really braided, just sort of twisted together. They were wrapped round and round her neck and tied in knots on the right side. One detail that wasn't in the news, a detail that police deliberately kept from the press, was that the first five women had all been sexually assaulted with objects. If Sophie's killer was a copycat, Bob Payton or someone else, he wouldn't have known about that part of the ritual. At Sophie's crime scene, there was semen, but there was no evidence of assault with an object. Police questioned Payton, and he failed two separate lie detector tests. In 1962, there was no way to do a DNA test on the semen they had found near Sophie's body. They couldn't tie Payton to the crime scene, so the detectives had to release him. Just ahead on Stranglers, the Boston Strangler goes viral. We'll hear one chilling first-hand account of a 1962 crime inspired by the Strangler. And we'll talk to Professor Jane Caputi, an expert who spent her career attempting to understand why our society turns serial killers into cultural icons. That's like the most common part of this mythicization, and that's that they become immortal, they become a legend. 
for having me. <laughs> so nice to meet you. You too. Hi Thank there. you. Hi. Are we on? Yes. Oh, get out of here. Yeah. No, get We're out. always on. Really? <laughs> this past summer, I visited a woman in a suburb of Boston. I met her through reporter Loretta McLaughlin. She agreed to tell me her story as long as I didn't use her name. Would you like me to take my shoes off or no? no. Is that okay? She lives in an old house in an oceanside town six miles north of Boston, not far from Logan Airport. We sat together in her living room. She told me about her memories of the stranglings in the winter of 1962. It was happening at a time when I was six years old, and um, I would say the first time um, that I really remember being frightened about the Boston Strangler was when the kid behind our house murdered his sister. They had argued about the radio and got into a huge fight, and he killed her, you know, with stocking around her neck like she had been strangled. Wow. He tied stockings around her neck? Yes. And made it look like a strangling? Yes. This is an article about the murder from the Sarasota Herald Tribune. The pretty drum majorette and drill team captain for a Catholic youth organization unit was found dead in her third-floor bedroom of the family home on Friday night. The article says that the 14-year-old boy choked his sister. Then he picked up a knife and cut her several times. But medical examiner Michael Luongo said death was caused by a pair of pajama pants tightly drawn around her throat. When the boy realized what he'd done, he panicked and tried to revive her. He half-filled a pressure cooker with water and put his sister's face in it, hoping that would wake her up. But it was too late. Police questioned the boy, and after he failed a lie detector test, he confessed. What I remember is lying in bed after we found out about the, the boy who killed his sister, and... Um, you know, thinking about him running through our yard made it almost, for me, thinking that he would again. I didn't know if he had been locked up. I didn't know anything. Just remember, he's going to climb up the pipe. And, yeah, I, saw, I did not sleep well. Ever. Ever? Ever. What ever. What do you mean by ever? I mean, for that, from that, I really thought that I was going to be murdered, that it could happen to me. How long did it last? Um... The fear? Certainly into my 20s or 30s. That's significant. Yes. I had noted beginning in the 70s that you started getting this cult of serial sex killers. I was actually taking a class on folklore, and all the elements of a folkloric hero, I noticed, were around these serial killers. They have this sort of powerful mythic name, there's songs or legends or media attention, all these kind of narratives associated with them. So I ended up writing my dissertation on this subject, which later I turned into a book. Professor Jane Caputi would not be surprised by the story I heard in that old house just north of Boston. Caputi is the professor at Florida Atlantic University that we heard from in the last episode. She's studied serial killers extensively, and she understands how they can take on an almost iconic status. Can you talk about copycat killing and what that's all about? I think when I was mm -hmm. reading your book, you said something like, imitation is glued to the phenomenon of the Ripper, meaning Jack the Ripper, and yeah. all of sex crime. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it's, it's really 
that these these killings, and again, it's often the way that they're portrayed in the media, in that they're portrayed as these fascinating, heroic, subtly kind of crimes in which the killer is immediately given a kind of immortality and belongs to a select club. So that inspires copycats who want to do the same thing, maybe outdo the original killer. And you certainly see this with acts of mass shooting. Right. You know, and there's even like an understanding that there's a contagion. Some, some actually use the word contagion about this and it, that we have to be really careful about how these kinds of crimes are publicized because they are going to inspire imitation to get the kind of glory, I hate to say it, but glory that's associated with them. Mm. All right, here's a story. When I first got my job here, there's a restaurant called Boston's. They took me out on my job interview, right, where I'm supposed to be really proper and uh, not make a scene or anything. (laughs) A menu for the restaurant called Boston's had a drink list, and one of the drinks that was being sold was the Boston Strangler. Really? I'm not kidding. Wow. There used to be a restaurant in New York City called Jack the Ribber. Again, that tells me not only that these killers have been turned into sort of cult objects of fascination, subtly heroized. I mean, that's like the most common part of this mythicization. And that's one, you know, that's one attribute of the hero, the hero hero or the outlaw hero, is that they become immortal. They become a legend. Yeah. When I Remember I said I, I looked at this originally as a folklore project where I looked at categories from folklore. And the category that jumped out at me was the outlaw hero. And the outlaw hero is doing something illegal, but something that it's acknowledged that a large portion of the population wants to do. So you, you either have fiction about these kinds of criminals who are really celebrated, whether it be you know, the gangster or the rapist or the serial killer, because somehow when they attain that outlaw hero status – it's recognized that they are acting out the forbidden impulses or the impulses that a lot of the population, enough of the population, would think they might want to do. Jane Caputi suggests that in reporting the Boston Strangler the way they did, the press was also creating a mythology. By giving the killer a name, the Boston Strangler or the Phantom Fiend, By putting him in the headlines and detailing his every fetish and ritual, they created an outlaw hero, thereby opening the door to copycat killers. When Sophie Clark was strangled, the city was less certain than ever who the strangler was. Wasn't absolutely certain that it was the strangler who had killed her. I mean, the strangler. If it wasn't one man, then maybe there were two. And if there were two... What were we going to have? Four madmen loose in the city, strangling women and tying the garrots into bows? How many phantom killers could one city hold? By now the story had been published abroad. The London Daily News and Star reported that another Jack the Ripper might be loose in Boston. Stories appeared in newspapers in France, Spain, Germany, and Sweden. Three months passed before the next one. On December 5th, 20-year-old Sophie Clark was strangled with three stockings and a half. She was the first young girl. 
Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray, and the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Ben Avishai, Malika Woluchem, and Charlie Thurston, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are Jasmine Johnson, Carol Drews, Denise Cormier, Joel Johnstone. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil D. Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. Next week on Stranglers. I've had a bag of groceries with me because I can remember his passing me by and asking if he could help carry my bag. We locate a woman who's sure she came face to face with the Strangler. Many times, in fact. She even invited him to stop by and visit. I had no conscious awareness of this being a possibly very, very life-threatening situation. That's next time on Stranglers. <laughs>